jazz impresario George Ween has enjoyed a long career spreading the jazz gospel around the world. From his early days with the Newport Jazz Festival to the international festivals he's produced throughout the years, George's innovative marketing skills and his sensitivity as a musician have contributed to his great success. Today we revisit my 2006 conversation with George about his creating the festival phenomenon, his own piano playing, and his continuing love affair with jazz. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. I asked George how he hoped to make the first Newport Jazz Festival different from previous festivals. It's a question that I, uh, I never know how to answer because I never had really a goal. <laughs> I was just doing things, and uh, when I had the opportunity to do a festival, I'd been playing all the artists in my club, Storyville. I knew which artists were popular. So I figured if I put enough of them on the stage in, in one evening, that people from all over New England would come. And not only did they come from all over New England, they came from all over the world, and that's what I didn't figure. But you don't plan those things. I mean, maybe now people plan them because the book was written in those days, but there was no book when I started. So we were just, uh, what my plan was to be a success and maybe do it the next year. That, <laughs> that was what it was. Yeah. You've been a success, George. I'll tell you, it worked. <laughs> it's kept me alive, and uh, uh, it's a struggle for many years, but I got a little bit ahead of the game when... Uh, when Cool Cigarettes paid me some money not to use the name Newport because they were doing the Cool Newport Jazz Festivals. And somebody said, why is Cool sponsoring the Newport Jazz Festival when Newport's the name of another menthol cigarette? So they paid me a little bit of money to not use the Newport name for a few years. <laughs> Those things happen. But let me tell you, it is tough to make it in this business without sponsors. You can't make it. I think that's true of most concert presenting, though, isn't it? Even classical concerts, won't they have sponsors? The well, nonprofit has subscription and they have donations. Mm -hmm. I'm not nonprofit except most of the time. <laughs> but, <laughs> that's but, true of most jazz musicians. That's right. So we have to get marketing dollars, you know, from companies. And what made you think of that? Was it this serendipitous occurrence of cool? Wanting to pay you? And it started with Schlitz Beer, believe it or not. Mm. And uh, uh, I had a friend, Ben Barkin, who, uh, who became a friend who was w from Milwaukee. And he felt it was good for Schlitz to be involved with jazz. And we came up with a tour for him called the Schlitz Salute to Jazz. Brought Miles Davis and uh, and I think Dionne Warwick was on it and Nina Simone, a few good, good list of artists. And we toured about... Uh, 20 cities, the first time that had the name of a sponsor. And it was interesting. We went to Oklahoma City, and they wouldn't take ads for beer. I said, hey, what's this got to do with beer? I mean, it's not Joseph Schlitzbro. It's, it's Harry Schlitz. It's the Schlitz salute to jazz. They put the ad in the paper. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. Well, I think of you as the biggest band leader in the world, because your festivals are often putting people together to play together. So you are the conductor of all of this. And 
just as a big band leader puts a band together and thinks about people playing together, you get to do that all the time and you've done it for years. And I'm fascinated with that process in terms of when you started out. And of course, it's evolved to this huge entity that you have that has festivals all over the world. But when you were starting and thinking, I want to put these musicians together to do a jam session here or this, it's not as easy as it looks. You and I know this. People think anybody can play together, but it's not true. You put a lot of thought into this. Well, you do have to know something about music and about the personalities of musicians. But what I did do in the first festival, which uh, was unique, was I, I didn't care about the styles of the different groups not playing together, but playing on the same program. So you had Eddie Condon with with Bobby Hackett and Wild Bill Davison on the same program with Lenny Tristano and Lee Konitz. That completely revitalized the whole structure of bringing jazz together as a family. And uh, so now on festivals, you'll have many kinds of music. And that was a major contribution. That, that, that was important because... I, I, in a sense, broke down this incredible rivalry between styles. I mean, it's still older musicians say the younger ones can't play, and the younger ones still say the older ones uh, they they don't play anything, you know. And so, but there's still a respect for musicianship, and that's what counts. And I found that very much when I've done festivals that the great thing for musicians so much is getting to hear all this other music because we're all traveling so much. You don't get to just have a moment that you say, okay, I'm done with my own concert. I can go hear something else. You get all that support from other musicians, which I think is great. They love it. They get together and they say hello to each other. It's it's sort of like an all-star game at a baseball stadium where they get a chance to see each other personally with guys from the other league or something that they never see them. But I found that in the early days of my festivals, I didn't hear much music because I was so busy checking the sound and checking who's on next and checking this and checking how many tickets did we sell, you know, and that I missed some great music. I listen to the <laughs> records now. But now, believe it or not, when I'm at my festivals, I listen more to the music. I just go up on stage and listen. I don't run the festivals anymore. My My team does, my company. In the early days... I mean, I really used to do everything, mm, mm. including sometimes emceeing and, and sometimes playing a piano. So you know, and you do that fairly often. That's got to be a great thing. I don't play that much now. Although on March twentieth, I played. I'm going to play. Well, it's, uh, I'm doing a thing at Feinstein's. I rehearsed yesterday with Bucky Pizzarelli and Jay Lenhardt, and I'm singing. You know, and and. Uh, it's going to be very emotional because I'm doing 1930 songs, uh, 10 Pan Alley tunes, not, not Cole Porter or Rodgers and Hammerstein. I'll leave that to Feinstein Michael himself and to Bobby Short and rest his soul, you know what I mean? You know, those people could sing those songs. I'm picking songs that nobody sings. So, <laughs> so they, they can't compare me to anything. And, uh, but at the same time, uh, it's really my first public appearance since, uh, my my wife passed away and and uh, was sold out. It's like a party, 140 people sold out two weeks ago, two weeks before the date, and all friends and they're coming and and it's going to be, I say it's going to be even though by the time you hear this, it it'll be passed, but I'm very excited about it. The rehearsal went beautifully, 
and it's going to have a lot of meaning to me, a lot of emotion, so I'll, I'll try to get through it. I'm going to sit right down and write myself a letter And make believe it came from you I'll write words so, so sweet They'll knock me off my feet Kisses on the bottom I'll be glad I got them I'll smile and say I hope you're feeling better Love the way you always used to do I'll sit right down and write myself a letter Pretty baby And make believe it came from you There have to have been many hilarious times at festivals that you can remember that you put a group together that seemed like a really good idea at the time but somehow something good or bad happens from it. Is there anything that comes to mind? You've been doing this for so many years. There have to be some big surprises that have happened with, with groups that have come out. Oh, this was involved with, with me. Uh, it was at Newport in a small concert in a hotel on the Friday nights. And there was a blues guitarist. I can't think of his name. He's from Boston. He's a good little guitar player. And he called me up to play with him. And he hollers out the key. I didn't hear it. I He was playing in C, and I played in G. <laughs> and it was really very strange, because they're, they're close. You know, G and C are close, but they don't quite make it. And I came off the stage, and Ruth Brown was, uh, was, was sitting there, and she says, I thought you could play the blues, man. You can't play anything, man. You're terrible. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I thought you were going to say something. And I kept hitting, you know, the, 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 you know, it, 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 G, B, and D could be a C ninth, you know, C major ninth chord. You know what I mean? I you thought see? you were right, exactly. And so, so you know, and, and I could not because it's so loud. You know, when you're playing with no, these I electronic know. things, so loud you can't. It's too loud. You can't hear it. Can't hear anything. Mm. And so. uh that was a rather embarrassing moment because I love Ruth Brown when she said, man, you can't play the blues. <laughs> <laughs> Say I'm gonna sit right down and write myself a letter And make believe it came all the way from you I'll write words oh so sweet They'll knock me off my feet So glad that I got him out smile and say, I hope you're feeling better. And close with love the way you always used to do. I'll sit right down and write myself a letter. Baby, make believe it came from you. I'm looking at the music that you chose today as some of your favorites, and I love this list. You you chose Weatherbird, Louis Armstrong. I love that tune. Talk about that and why you particularly like that performance. It was a very early duet recording. I don't know of any other duet jazz recordings that had any meaning in those days. 
and it's two masters that make this record live, and it's as modern and structured today as it was when it was done in what, 27, 28, something like that, mm -hmm. 1927, 1928. And to hear it played today, uh, Wenton played it the other night in, in here, and Dick Hyman plays it. A few people can play it, but uh, they don't play it note for note. Hyman plays it note, Dick plays it note for note, uh, Winton doesn't, but he starts off playing it note for note, then he just takes it to another level. Uh, which may be good or maybe not, because Louis Armstrong's level was fairly good. So, but I love Winton because he's one of the few young musicians that does go back and realizes the magnificence of that music mm. and can switch styles, can go from bebop and contemporary right back to the swing era mm -hmm. that, uh, that Armstrong personified. But uh, it, it is one of the masterworks in the history of jazz, Weatherbird. a broad taste of jazz that you enjoy too, which is great. I loved you saying that you wanted to put different styles together in your jazz festivals because a lot of festivals don't do that. 
and you still do that. You're open to many different styles. Is that your personal taste, or is it still the conscious thing that you want to bring an audience to all these different kinds of jazz? I feel a jazz festival should be everything from J to Z, you know, if it if you can do it. Your personal tastes are one thing. I have to not always think of my personal tastes when I'm doing a producing a festival. I have to think of the tastes of people that are coming to the festival. And I have to try to educate. I don't like the word educate in that respect. But I try to expose them to different musics so that maybe they'll enjoy it. It's difficult because people are so fixed in their likes and dislikes that if you have people that like Miles Davis and you put on uh, Ruby Braff, I mean, they don't care about Ruby Braff. And a lot of the people that care about Ruby Braff don't care about Miles Davis. So that's too bad. But I judge from a personal point of view one thing, artistry. If I feel a musician is an artist then I listen to him more than if he's just somebody playing notes because a lot of musicians just play notes. And uh, that doesn't appeal to me. And I think it's one of the things, very, very difficult for somebody to play four or five choruses, six choruses, or even no choruses, play a modal scale, you know, for, for five minutes and expect to hold the interest because nobody's that good. Coltrane was good. He could do it. Sonny Rollins, you know. But hey, everybody's not Coltrane or Sonny Rollins. <laughs> Sometimes you need the help of a good song and a good chord progression, you know, to sort of guide you in, uh, in your improvisations. Because that's basically what a good song does. You know, it's like uh, Dizzy Gillespie playing I Can't Get Started and Buddy Berrigan playing I Can't Get Started. It's two marvelous renditions of the same songs, totally different styles, but both of them guided by the harmonic structure even if Dizzy altered the harmonic structure slightly, that's not important. He utilized the melody as a basis for his his improvisation. Speaking to this and talking about having the structure of a great tune, and do you think that more musicians should do that, should be thinking about that? Do you think it would help jazz if they thought more about the audience? I don't think they care. I think they care about creating a little riff and putting their name on as a composer so they get the royalties on a recording. And that's a disease. That is that that costs them a lot of money because very few people can write good songs. I mean Thelonious Monk could write good songs. I mean Thelonious Monk's songs were if Thelonious had a different personality, he would have been as great a songwriter as Duke Ellington was. In fact, in some cases he may be equal anyway to Duke Ellington. You know, it's just that he never could prolong his career the way Duke did because of his own personal illness problems. But, I mean, Thelonious Monk was a songwriter, but not many others. John Lewis was a composer. You know, you could name them. and But everybody, everybody, I can go sit down, you can go down and sit down. We do a little riff and put it, that's our tune, and put our name on it, a publisher, and then we play what whatever we want to play. But that isn't, that, 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 that's destructive in the long run. It doesn't mean you have to play standards, but find the interesting melodies that jazz has had, regardless of style, and use that as your basis. And then if you want to do an original, do an original. But don't. I, I look at CDs, and when I see where every tune is written by the, the, the musician, I don't listen to the CD. 
unless I really know the musician. If I know him and he asks me to listen, that's another story. But I get so many CDs in the mail, and everything I'll see, there's 12 tunes all written by the same person. And nobody's that good. They can't write that much. Duke Ellington. Talk about crescendo and diminuendo in blue. What that was like to be there, hear that. And for our listeners who aren't familiar with that, talk about that. Duke Ellington was, you know, very important to me personally. I got very close to him the last three or four years. I think starting in 68 to 69, I was his international impresario, but I'd known him for many years before that because of Storyville, my club, and Newport. And Newport was very important to Duke. That 1956 Paul Gonzalez, and uh, that gave him an impetus for his latter career. And he always used to say, I was born in Newport in 1956, you know, and like, and here I am listening to his music from 1920s and 30s and just marveling at it, you know, and he says, born at Newport. But it brought me close to Duke, and uh, he was an idol that didn't have feet of clay. You know, he worked at his music. He would goof sometimes on the stage, you know, thinking he had to be commercial and do certain things. But after the gig, he would be upstairs writing music, you know, whether he was in in Germany or, or, or South America or whatever. He loved his public he said, look, if I go to a town and things aren't right, I will never threaten not to play. The people came to hear me. He said, I will tell my manager never to work with this booker or this, this promoter again, but I will never not play. If the piano isn't right, I'll figure out something. That's, that's okay if you've got a band and you can do that, but he... he uh, had a warmth and a beauty about him. I miss him every day. I really do.
the Duke Ellington Orchestra at the 1956 Newport Jazz Festival. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. For a discography of the music played on our show and a schedule of upcoming programs, visit our website at jazzinspired.com. You can email us at info at jazzinspired.com. To find out more about my music and what I'm doing, and to sign up for our email newsletter, visit judycarmichael.com. Festival producer and pianist George Ween talked with me about all the great musicians he's known over the years. I miss so many great musicians, you know, that were part of my life, you know. And sometimes you hear the music and it's talking to you, you know, and, and, you, and you know they're gone, but uh, the music's still there. But I, I find trouble having a, getting a band together now when I want to play. So that's why I was glad I could get Bucky Pizzarelli to play with me because, you know, they know the repertoire. They know the tunes. They know the feeling. They know what you want. And, you know, many a night I would, uh, when they weren't working, I'd get a gig. I'd have Tyree Glenn, who was Duke's trombone player, fit right in. Ray Nance would play a gig with me, you know. And, and uh, uh, many of Duke's guys, Norris Turney, Harold Ashby, they all played Jimmy Wood, you know, I mean, they all played with with the Newport All-Stars mm. at one time or another. And uh, so, hey, this was a togetherness there that all related. Duke would call me up every so often when the man was playing, introduced me, I had to sit down and play the piano. And, I, and they sent me a record from uh, Sweden where I'm playing with Duke's band. And uh, that, that was a thrill. I mean, you talk about thrills. <laughs> I mean, hey. You know, and Duke's introducing me on the record. I didn't even know they recorded it. Oh, you didn't? You no, know, they sent me a check, believe it or not. But I didn't I didn't know that uh, it was being recorded. And uh, it sounds okay, you know, as good as I can sound, which is only, which has its limits. But, uh, <laughs> but what a thrill. I mean, it is a thrill. I mean, anybody tells you it isn't, they tell blase about it. Don't believe it, you know, to sit in and have the man himself. But, because Duke was the man, you know, and, and uh, uh, he had the respect of every musician that, that knew him and followed him.
as a respect to the younger musicians today. Everybody talks about Duke Ellington, you know. Now, whether they know what the hell Duke Ellington was all about, I don't know, because they talk about it, but then when I hear them play, I wonder whether they knew what it was about. <laughs> but they don't have to, because they have their own thing. If I listen to them and their own thing has a significance and a beauty to it, I, that's really all I care about. It. I don't like to... People think I don't like young musicians. You know, I'm not interested. I'm very interested in young musicians. I mean, and they're the lifeblood of keeping this music alive. And... uh uh they can play, and the problem is not that who they are or what they play. Right now, we're in a transition period, and everybody is searching for a voice. And playing the instrument, they're marvelous players, but a lot of them don't have a style or a voice. And jazz was always a music of style and voice, whether it was Errol Garner or whether it was Basie Band that had this sound or whether it was... Uh, Miles with his mute and and, uh, and the voice is the thing that sells jazz. The voice of the musician's instrument, and you you can't. I, you might, if you're really a, an avid fan, be able to tell one musician from another, but because the you've listened to the records so much. But basically, the public, the voice is not there. You know, mm. and uh, uh, that's why jazz doesn't sell in tickets and the record sales are at a low ebb mm. and people had better learn to get that voice they will there'll be a voice come along you, you know? think it will uh, you're being optimistic you hope it will well things do happen in music uh you know i mean rock musicians sort of in a sense stole the best thing that that uh, uh happened to jazz was the blues you know and a lot of the young players don't play the blues you know they don't have it in their playing, and the rocks took the took, took the blues and made it into, you know, billions of dollars of record sales. So they find a voice. I don't understand the voice they find sometimes, but I don't know why it's selling. But it's selling. It mm. reaches out to a public, and uh, uh, so I don't know. You don't know. Jazz had a heyday back in the fifties. You know, they came out of the swing era, the Benny Goodman era, into the Brubeck, Miles era, you know, when jazz was big. But even at its biggest time, it was nothing compared to... The Beatles probably sold more records than all jazz musicians combined. Mm. You know, maybe. I'd I'd say a strong statement, but it's not too far from the truth, you know. As you're talking about this and your feeling about playing with Duke, just looking at your face and the memory of it for you and the respect of it. I am struck by that with so many of the musicians that would be from an earlier generation, that when they were young, as they got older, the entire time they were so passionate about the music and the soul of the music and frankly honored, not to get too highfalutin about it, to be able to play. As you said, you never take that for granted. And I can tell how you are talking about your upcoming date at Feinstein's and all that's going to mean to you. Do you think the music means the same thing to players now? Oh, yes. You do? You think oh, the young yes. jazz musicians feel oh, that yes. same way? Oh, yes. But it's, 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 it's a different approach. They're thinking differently. They, 
you know, Charlie Parker made history with, with one 12-bar blues chorus or two 12-bar blues choruses with a style and a sound and a voice. Now these musicians are thinking so much, and they don't realize they play so much. You go to hear a quartet, and they don't realize that after you're sitting there for two, two numbers, not two sets, two numbers, you've heard everything that musician can play. Mm-hmm. And that's what they don't understand. You have to hold something back. Mm-hmm. When you'd hear a great band, and Johnny Hodges, was, I mean, that's a big band, but you even say even with a small band. When you, when you heard Johnny Hodges and he played, if you loved Johnny Hodges, you wanted more. One time somebody gave me a CD with Johnny Hodges and, and uh, Wild Bill Davis and about 15 tunes on it. By the end of the 15 tune, I didn't want to hear Johnny Hodges anymore. <laughs> I said, take that off. I don't want to hear that. I mean, get it, get it away from me. I don't want to get that feeling about Johnny Hodges. Mm. Now, this is a very important thing. Mm-hmm. So you you go down, I go down to the different clubs, and they say, this is a great player, this is a great player. This is a, and I hear a number, it sounds good, the second number, the third number. I say, well, I'm going home. I already heard everything you can play. You know? <laughs> and they don't understand uh, that, but they are into their music. They feel it. Mm-hmm. They feel it. And some of the people in the audience feel it the same way. So you can't knock it. You can discuss it and maybe try to help because they all want to make more money. They all want to be, be accepted on a different level. And, and it isn't that they want to compromise. They just don't know any different. When they come out of, so many people come out of music schools and they learn what they're doing at jam sessions at the school. And they carry that, you know, then they work and they come up with a structure. Of, and uh, that's why so many people going into world music for background. They're looking for different things. But that's fine. But you you have to stay with something for a while. Mm. They'll make a one record, and then they get another idea. They'll make another record with different voices, different instruments. You know, when you had a group like like uh, the fifties, they got a quartet together, a quintet together. It was Blakey, or whether it was Horace Silver, and they kept their thing together until they established themselves. And uh, name any of those groups, and you'll, you'll have the same thing. That was the heyday of jazz. Mm. And you could identify what their sound was because they did stick with it for a while. As you're saying this, I'm thinking about it. They didn't change every single record radically. They didn't feel that they Well, they, then people said he's playing the same old thing. Hey, you know, Picasso was one of the few artists that ever lived that could change his chorus and still be the boss, you know, <laughs> from, from 1900 <laughs> to uh, 1970 or whatever it was. But, I mean, Errol Garner had a chorus that nobody could match. Thank you. 
But when do you hear O'Connor's name mentioned now when you talk about great piano players? He just happens to be one of the greatest piano players in the history of the music. I mean, you think of the voices on piano, and hey. How about Art Tatum? I know well, you're a Tatum fan. Talk about well, Tatum. I mean, you know, Tatum was the gateway to a lot of modern structure of things, but but uh, I love Tatum. I worship Tatum. But but I loved Garner. I loved Earl Hines. I loved Teddy Wilson. But I like Bud Powell. You know what I mean? I, I like Hank Jones. I mean, I, I mean these guys are masters. You know, and a lot of young players today they can play. You know, I could name ten names, but I don't want to name ten because I'll leave out ten. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and, and I, when I tell you, there's twenty or thirty good young piano players. And one of the few pianists now is not so young anymore because he's been around a long time that really understands how to reach an audience is Keith Jarrett. He sells out. And when you go and study his concert, you'll see why, how he structures his concert and knows the audience to, to whom he's playing. And it appears that he's being inward and only concerned with himself. But it's not true. He's concerned with his audience. He's but very clever he, but, with that. Oh, he is. He's he's a master. Who was the first pianist you heard that really got you excited when you were a kid? Do you remember the first time you heard jazz, or somebody turned you on to jazz? I I I, I don't know. Small band jazz. See, I, I had um, when I was thirteen years old. I had a big band in my cellar. You know, where you got the kids <laughs> in the neighborhood, like rock uh, kids get together. Yeah, but uh, you had a big band. band. I had three, You're already three trumpets, big. two trombones, four saxophones, and three rhythm or four rhythm. Kids from all over the, you know, neighborhood came. <laughs> I love that. They're playing in the mood and playing tunes like that. They had the stock arrangements for the big bands. But then I got into improvisation and uh, listening to small bands. And uh, that was even before I heard Armstrong's Hot Five and Hot Seven. But I heard Roy Eldridge and Benny Goodman trio and quartet. So I guess it was... Uh, I got so I'd rather than hear the Benny Goodman band, I'd rather hear the quartet and the trio because Teddy Wilson really thrilled me in those days. I loved Teddy Wilson, and uh, he probably was my major influence. And then I studied jazz piano with a man by the name of Sam Sachs, whose idol was Earl Father Hines. So uh, uh, you'll hear a little bit of that in my playing. favorite of my guest, producer George Ween. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. How would you have time to practice with as busy as you are? That's what I've wondered all these years. When I've heard you play, I thought, when does this man practice? 
I don't practice that much. It's just I, I sort of gave up learning when I got involved in the business end of it, you know. And but I so I was happy to play what I knew, and I just keep my fingers, try to keep them uh, flexible. But uh, we'll talk about this CD. Ween women and song and more. I I used to sing when I was a kid, very young, and my mother played a little piano for me. I'd sing in some of these kiddie programs, you know, when I was seven, eight years old. Some of these songs I sang when I was seven or eight years old, and uh, I always wanted to sing. You know, I can't sing. I mean, I don't have. A, I'm not a vocalist, you know, but uh, I can phrase the song fairly well and. Um, so years ago, I was at a party in New York, and I can't remember the man's name, but he was a wonderful boat piano player. And uh, he had set up this party, and I, I have his name in my book, but I can't remember it because it was a very funny night. And um, he had set up the party and invited Ahmed Erdogan, and there were a lot of people there, and he played and sang quite a bit that night. And there were some other singers there. I think Herb Jeffries was there. And it was one of these New York parties, a soiree. And at the end of the night, I sat down and sang one song. I would sit right down and write myself a letter. Now, this was 1955. And uh, uh, 54, 55, I don't know. And um, George Frazier, who was a jazz writer, whom Ahmed Erdogan respected very, very much. Hey, why don't you record George Wheat? He has a record company, Storyville Records, and you have Atlantic. It'd be a good story. So the next thing I know, Ahmed asked me to make a record, Wheat Women and Song. Well, I hadn't met his brother Nessui yet. And Nessui was just being brought into Atlantic Records to do their jazz. He'd been on the West Coast and had not been in the record business, had a record store and everything. And that was the beginning of, of Atlantic really becoming a major company and Nessui came in and he says who the hell is this George Wayne that I have to record I came in here to record he was the other only other group he had was the modern jazz quartet John Lewis <laughs> well Nessui and I became lifelong friends he forgave me you know, <laughs> that, he, that he had to produce my album but there's lots of stories about that but uh, then years later I decided to try to make another album and I most of the stuff I didn't like, but there was I culled a lot of it. So this is a combination of uh, stuff I did in the 90s and stuff I did in the 50s. Every time it rains, it rains Pennies from heaven Don't you know each cloud contains Pennies from heaven You'll find your fortune falling all over town Be sure that your umbrella Is upside down Trade them for a package of Sunshine and flowers If you want the things you love There must be showers So when you hear it thunder Don't run under a tree There'll be pennies from heaven for you and me. How do you think, with all your 
entrepreneurial activities and getting these jazz festivals together and all that. Do you think your being a jazz musician, being a musician, has affected the way you've approached these things from a business standpoint? Oh, there's no question about it. Mm. There's no question about it. But there are other influences in my life that affected, shall we say, a showbiz approach of, of uh, thinking of the audience, thinking of the way you plan a show. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, I used to listen to Al Jolson and Eddie Cantor when I was a kid, you know, and I, and great songs and great, always had meaning to me before I even got involved with jazz. And so I think some of those things carried over in your concern for being a producer. Mm. And, you know, we had to develop certain things with musicians. We had to develop what we call festival sets because they would come with no concept of time. <laughs> And they would go on, and hey, I mean, and you, in the early festivals went till 2 o'clock in the morning. You know what I mean? It was crazy. It was lovely for the people that that stayed that were the real jazz. They were the same that I was when I'd go to New York and start in at 8 o'clock in Child's Restaurant and end up at 4 o'clock in the morning on 52nd Street. That was, and I, I used that approach in my producing. I wanted to do that, but I didn't want it to go to 4 o'clock in the morning. Right, right. So I had to tell a musician, you got... You know, 45 minutes, you got 50. And uh, now we plan a little better. Now we give them an hour. But in some, those early days, sometimes you had to tell a group, you got 35 minutes. You look at you, it's crazy. But they learn to adapt. They learn that festivals, if they stay on too long, they're on too long. Right. And so that that was part of the things that were developed. And, and in, in the, i never forget Stevie Wonder. He played on a uh, on a soul festival we did years ago, and we gave him plenty of time, 70 minutes. But Stevie likes to play for three hours. Right. You know what I mean? So when it was over, Stevie says, you know, George, he said, I didn't think I could do that. But, you know, I worked it out. It was okay. You know? <laughs> I wish I could get him now to do some jazz because Stevie's a good jazz oh, player. Oh, absolutely. But uh, it's very difficult to get hold of Stevie. You know? That's always what I hope for is some yeah. interesting combinations like that. People yeah. like Stevie Wonder who you know would like to do it if you could get to him to actually put it together. What would you like to produce that you haven't gotten to produce? If you could, Stevie Wonder's a good example, a dream situation what would you like to do if everybody would say yes that's difficult because i've exercised most of my dreams i my know life. i know that's why i'm asking and, uh, i don't have uh, many dreams right now in other words we just saved the new orleans jazz and heritage festival and we brought in some major artists I mean, bruce springsteen's coming doing pete seeger songs i, I think that's marvelous because pete seeger is one of my very I'll say more. He's more than a close friend. He's somebody I, I just uh, I dedicated my book to Pete Seeger mm. and, and Toshi, uh, who never give up hope that the world can be a better place mm -hmm. in which to live. You know, that's what Pete means to me. So, when Springsteen answered, uh, uh, he not personally when I called his management, and they said they're interested in coming to New Orleans. Well, that was very important because that that. Having an artist like Springsteen come to New Orleans, hey, we're still alive. Mm -hmm. and a lot of other great artists, including Bob Dylan and, and uh, Paul Simon. And, and now these aren't jazz people, but then you've got your jazz tent in New Orleans, Herbie Hancock's coming, you know, and you've got, you've got many hours of many different kinds of music. 
and including gospel and but those big names are the frosting on the cake mm-hmm. and they're the ones that catch the eye of the people as they walk by do a lot of the people that come to hear bruce springsteen stay and go hear herbie hancock do you think oh, you get that i don't know because i've always wondered that if I by don't. adding those other people if it exposes some new people to jazz i imagine there is a percentage of mm-hmm. that but i find that the that celebrity love is just that i mean mm-hmm. you 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 only interested in the celebrity you love and you, you i remember once we were at a press conference at Carnegie Hall and Judith Aaron and we were doing a Eastwood after hours concert good concert i was sitting at a table and uh Lenny Niehaus i think was sitting at a table and Judith Aaron and Clint Eastwood well, the place was packed with press. So every question was directed to uh, Clint Eastwood. And Clint, finally, after about 20 minutes, after le- had, had to leave. The entire room left. The three of us are sitting there at the table. <laughs> Nobody cared about the concert. Nobody cared about it. We live in a celebrity world. You sure, you sure get a, uh, a lesson in who you are. As far as you think you're important when when you're (laughs) sitting next to a celebrity. (laughs) Tell me what's happening here in New York. We're both New Yorkers. What's coming up? You know, the big thing we do every year is the JVC Festival. Mm -hmm. And in a sense, we take over as much of New York City as we can. And we do about eight or nine concerts at Carnegie Hall. We haven't announced the schedule yet, but there's a few interesting events one of them we're going to do a tribute to Lorraine Gordon and the Vanguard. And uh, I want to call it Sweet Lorraine, but uh, she doesn't necessarily want to call it that. Oh, I but, like that. But I think it's a good title, you know, and, and we'll do that. And uh, Herbie Hancock's going to be involved. We're doing a lot of things around the city. And uh, at, at, at smaller concerts like uh, at, at the Danny Kay Theater. And we do some things uptown in the Studio Museum and... and uh, I mean, JVC is is a wonderful sponsor. They've been with us 23 years now. And they sponsor Newport, and we do a few things around the world. Newport, of course, will be in August, and uh, we're getting that program together. And at Newport, what we decided to do is not look for the celebrities, because one, we can't get them, and two, let's have faith in the music. So we've had good luck the past couple of years. Haven't had the big crowds we might have had, but we're off one or two thousand people, but we're still drawing six, seven, eight thousand people instead of nine, ten, eleven thousand mm-hmm. people. And they're great festivals, and they're up at Newport at Fort Adams. And so this year, uh, JVC, calling us is God bless them because they they have stuck with me. And uh, they, they, they're the best sponsor possible because they never try to tell me what to do or how to do. Mm. They respect what we do. And in New York, yeah, we're, we're very proud of what we did to New York. You know, when we came to New York, New York was a, uh, it was a dead place in the summer. And Carnegie Hall and Philharmonic Hall, which is now Avery Fisher Hall, I went to both halls. I said, well, you stay open an extra seven or eight days to me. And the next thing I know, I was putting on 40 concerts in a 10-day period <laughs> in New York City, including midnight concerts at, at uh, uh, Radio City Music Hall, boat rides and uh, a Staten Island ferry. 
I mean, New York was wide open for any ideas we had. And uh, we broke even the first year. I couldn't believe it because we didn't have sponsor money or anything. And $10 tickets was a huge ticket. And you could rent the hall and pay the musicians on a $10 ticket. Those days are gone forever. Yeah. And uh, uh, so what it did was opened up New York. Now New York is a summer festival all year long. And uh, and we're very proud of that, you know. And uh, and then JVC came along and kept us alive. And uh, now every, every uh, June, whoever's the mayor, ever since... Uh, I think uh, Ed Koch's first term, the mayor has this party at Gracie Mansion for us, and, and Bloomberg and Giuliani and David Dinkins and Koch, and, you know, they all have a beautiful party, and uh, at, at and it's JVC Jazz Festival Week in New York, and uh, we're sort of smothered a little bit recently because of jazz at Lincoln Center, because they get most of the publicity, but we're still doing our thing. And Winton is very nice to me. He says, you know, actually what we are is an extension of you, he says Aww. to me. He says that. Well, you started and, it all. Well, we did start it all. And and I'm very, very concerned with Jazz at Lincoln Center. I'm on the board. And in the long run, that's what has to exist because it's jazz has to be institutionalized, you know, just like symphony or mm-hmm. museum or something. Not that that should affect the music. Because uh, they're going to have to open up many things at Jazz and Lincoln Center, and uh, but it has to be subsidized. It, it's very nice to have a nightclub and go. And musicians are working for the door. Mm. You know, I'm working for the door at Michael Feinstein's. I mean, that's but I mean that's a different story. But I mean, they're doing. I go down to clubs, and musicians are playing for the door, and then maybe they take in the whole group three hundred dollars for the night. You mm-hmm. know, hey. People don't realize they, this. They've got to make a living, musicians. It's very hard to make so, a living as a jazz and, musician. And uh, this is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. You know, now it's it's sort of a romanticized situation. Oh, these poor musicians working and they're playing their hearts out. I mean, hell with that, man. You know, hey, pay these guys. No, I'm with you. There's nothing and, romantic about not being and, able to pay the rent. Yeah, and so it's it. it uh, I've always paid musicians, and I, I've uh, I don't know what scale is. I'm 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 tough to deal with. On one level, but on another level, a musician has to make a nice pay, Mm -hmm. you know. And so it's just, that's the way it is. But but I I work very hard for Jazz and Lincoln Center in addition to my Mm -hmm. own programming. They asked me to uh, ask every board member to sign a conflict of interest paper. I said, how can I sign that? I'm a walking (laughs) conflict of interest. Well, I'm thanking you for all the musicians that you have had at your festivals and all the audiences, and it's just great what you've done over the years and what you're continuing to do, and have a ball at Feinstein's. It's going to be so much fun. It's going to be a great evening. Judy, you're you're something special, because you're a musician, and yet you want to do these things. And that's, you know, Mary McPartland has done that, and in, in many ways, that's just as important a contribution as you're playing good music. Thank you. That's nice. Thank you very much. And thanks for taking this time. You've been listening to pianist and festival producer George Ween. I hope you'll join me here next time when I talk with another creative person about how jazz has inspired their life and work. 
I'm Judy Carmichael, the host and producer of Jazz Inspired. My production engineer is Curtis Heidolf. The opening music was Airmail Special from my CD High on Fats and Other Stuff. And the closing music is Old Fashioned Love from my CD Trio. I'm on piano with Mike Hashem on sax and Chris Flory on guitar. For a schedule of upcoming programs, to sign up for our email newsletter, or to find out how you can personally support Jazz Inspired, visit our website at jazzinspired.com. You can email us at info at jazzinspired.com. To find out more about what I'm doing in my music, visit judycarmichael.com. Special thanks to Tom Rickenback, Stephen Linda Plotnicki, and our webmaster, Megan Lewis. Judy Carmichael's Jazz Inspired is made possible with generous support from our listeners and from Steinway & Sons, Newman's Own, and the American Hotel Sag Harbor, New York. Visit online at theamericanhotel.com.